Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment is from the first of three chorale preludes that Bach wrote on the tune Allein Gott in der Höhe sei er. This one is BWV 662. Ernest Hemingway said, Prose is architecture, not interior decoration. The Baroque era is past. I like this quote, and I love how it connects to the supremely decorated thing that we are talking about today. In Hemingway's view, and you will know this if you know him as a writer, there's not a lot of fluff. And the the writer should not adorn the writing just for the sake of ornamentation. It should just be straight and to the point. It should be about the characters. It should be direct. The Baroque era, on the other hand, the art that comes from this era is the opposite of that. It is highly adorned. But Hemingway's point about prose being architecture, in music, The architecture is just as important, well, probably more important, than the decoration. And that brings us to today's organ chorale prelude. Bach clearly liked this tune, Allein Gott. It's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit text. So the verses after the first verse, the next three verses, talk about each of the persons of the Trinity in order. It's not 100% clear if this particular chorale prelude sets the first stanza or the second, third, or fourth. But either way, the architecture is the same, and that is the cantus firmus, which is a term that I don't think we have used on this podcast yet. Probably, Christian? Maybe once or twice. Not sure if we've defined it yet. But it is simply the tune. It is simply the chorale tune, usually a chorale, tune at the heart of a piece of musical work. A lot of times it'll be the old German chorale tune that an entire piece by Bach is based on. Cantus firmus is Latin. I guess it means strong song. (laughs) Right, Christian? Yeah. Firm, the foundational song. The song that is the foundation of the rest of the work. So in this chorale prelude, just as in all Bach chorale preludes, what you get is simply one exposition of one tune and usually it's only one time through and here it is the same it's really an adornment of something very simple this piece which our netherlands box society recording takes about eight and a half minutes to get through is an adornment of a melody which is actually very simple and consists of only seven short phrases each having about eight or so notes and that goes by pretty fast if you play it quickly like in less than a minute easily When listening to this chorale prelude, the first thing you hear is middle-range organ notes. The pedal comes in pretty shortly after. 
you're listening to this lovely music, and if you know the chorale tune, you're thinking to yourself, I haven't heard this tune yet. Bach has not gotten there yet. When's he going to get there? And it's not till a minute and 30 seconds into the piece when we get the chorale melody actually happening there. That's true, but Bach likes to set up the first phrase with the imitative left hand. We heard the same thing with another prelude this, that we explored recently. The, fir- the very first phrase of music, which is repeated in the dominant key right on measure two, kind of outlines the first phrase. Yeah, it usually sounds similar, but not exactly the same. He doesn't want us to mistake it, you know? Yeah. If you watch this recording here of Reitz Smits for the Netherlands Bach Society, he plays the chorale tune, the Cantus Firmus, on the right hand on a higher manual. And of course, it has a different registration, so a little bit more piercing sound, so it is distinguished from the other things that are happening in the left hand on the other manual. But the, the real crux of what I'm trying to say here is all this filigree, all the sprinkles on top of the ice cream, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's all ornaments, right? It's all, it's extra stuff, but the structure, the bare bones structure of it is simply a tune that goes like this. And now I will play those simple notes over the recording. You can see how for every one note I play, it's basically like seven or eight more notes that Bach adds. And those are all in between notes. And the notes I'm playing are the Cantus Firmus. They are the thing that everything else is built on. We should share in the show notes this analysis diagram that we have from the BachCantatas.com website mm. that I just found that illustrates very well your your point right here. Oh, yeah, that's great. It basically is showing in red notes the notes that are the cantus firmus, right? Yeah. And it, it also includes repeated pitches that are the same, so there are actually more red notes than actual melody notes, but... Yeah, I would say this isn't even bare bones enough. It needs to be, I would rather them have also circled like the notes that are on the beats, but you get the idea. Also, every time there's a squiggle, it is uh, one of the keyboard ornaments, ornament figures that the organist would, would know exactly how to interpret. And those in reality are more notes. Yeah. And those are also not shown here. Right, and everything has a different layer, level of functionality. So those notes, which are the the actual written out ornament symbols, those are like not even functional notes. Now the, the rest of the, the flowy stuff that Bach has written here, you still would call that, I would still call that ornamentation, but it's just written out ornamentation. So it's a little bit more functional, but you know, he doesn't really treat it that way. And it does create some interesting and unusual dissonances, which I love. So one of those examples happens in the inner parts. So at the end of the second and fourth lines of this 
chorale tune, we land on the pitch A, which is the tonic note. And that note gets landed on by the right hand, the cantus firmus. But then the other stuff that's happening underneath it is a little crunchy. And that's because those notes just exist in a space close to each other while the ornaments are happening. Okay, so we've talked about that the architecture is the Cactus Firmus. And what that means is that Bach is beholden to the way that tune goes. He can only do so much with the structure of the piece because he needs to use that tune in its order once through. So in a typical piece by Bach where he has original material that he gets to develop the way he wants, he tends to develop it harmonically in a certain way. This is a very common thing. You start in the tonic key center, you move to a dominant key center. After some development, you return to the tonic key center and end the piece. He's going to try to make that work with this melody, and most German chorale melodies do work for that structure. It's part of why that structure even exists, because it comes off of folk tunes, right? You know, so it's like, it, it makes sense. But there's some stuff in the fifth and sixth lines that kind of, kind of altered a little. There's seven lines total, right? In the fifth line, the melody moves up a step and it occupies what feels like B minor, which is the minor two of the A major that we're in. And that's like not a normal place to, to live in, but he needs to live there for a little bit. And you can get the sense that he's relieved in the sixth line of music when the melody goes a little higher, lands on the C sharp, and then he's allowed to use now F sharp minor, which is the relative minor of A. And now you, can, you almost can hear him going, ah, yes, that's better. That's where I wanted that to go. And now I can set up going back into, because he doesn't get to do the normal structure, right, Christian? I mean, the, the e, e major, you would think, it doesn't really happen where you think it would. No. And I mean, we do get some E major chords. It's not like you don't get those ever, but it's just that he doesn't get to sit in that as a middle key center, is what I'm saying. Right, Christian? Yeah. Because even those first two lines, which repeat to make the third and fourth lines, all of that... You know, that first line ends on a C-sharp. So that's not going to put us in E major at all. And then the second line, it ends on A. So Alex, to be clear, what you're describing harmonically about what needs to happen is that you're saying that these melodic phrases enter and then they end on a prominent long last note. Correct. And when they end, as they are ending and getting to that last note, the harmony generally concludes into a temporary area for a while. And then in between, the in-between few moments is when Bach stays in that intermediate area. Yeah. And he can't stay in E major for very long ever in this because the melody just doesn't allow that the infrastructure of this piece that was set when he decided to use this chorale tune it was already too late for for having a normal structure that includes a dominant key center as a big part of it. He could have done it when he ended on the note B, the re of do, re, mi in this case, because it's not, always do or re or mi. But not really, because, because that note is approached by an A sharp, and that seems like that wouldn't work, because then you'd have to have an F sharp chord. It's a little funky. I guess he could have, um, he's Bach, he could have figured it out. But the way he does it, I think is more interesting and cool 
Oh, that note is approached by an A sharp, even in the hymnal version. Yeah, that he had used. I don't think it. And that's why historically he, always was. He puts he puts us in kind of a B minory thing there, and that's because he need to set up B minor. That's where that A sharp is the leading tone. So that's why he does that. But when we, you know, regardless of what happens in the middle, nine times out of ten, that's no, not nine times, ninety nine point nine times out of a hundred, <laughs> um, the ending will conclude on the tonic. Like, you will be able to use the tonic chord at the end. Now, even so, some of the older modal stuff kind of doesn't, but that's not relevant here. And and even that stuff, Bach could could later make it so that it, it would end on the tonic, and he would change it a little bit. But when we get to the end here, this is coming up to my moment. And if you listened to this before you heard this episode, you probably realized we would talk about this ending the ending is the thing about this that is immediately striking. So what we're about to hear is a closing cadence where we end on the final note of the chorale tune. Here it comes. That's it. And now he's holding on that A while other stuff happens under. And you think it's probably going to end right here. I didn't. There's more. And even more. Now we're winding down. Still, not quite done. And that was the final note. So you see how Bach just really wants to prolong the ending of this. We talk about cadential extensions. This has several cadential extensions. It was like he just didn't want it to end. Bach did the absolute most he could do to adorn the melody, which is the architecture of the piece. He added so much to it that even at the end here, after that last note is over, he allows the right hand to add a little coda onto the end and extends that ending. So when it was feeling like it was wrapping up, it stops. It goes into this solo line thing with the right hand, as you heard, that even includes a little pregnant pause, which is performed beautifully in this recording. that falls down into, finally, the closing cadence. And even that takes a little bit of time to resolve a suspension. Which he returns to, it's like he's resolving it, but then he returns to the suspension, but then it finally resolves at the end. And every moment he could just use one note, he's always using two or three. Everything is adorned. So why is everything always adorned in this musical style, Alex? Why did people of this era not take the Hemingway approach and just be minimal? I mean, I think that's a huge question because it involves the like entire zeitgeist of the period, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think part of it, well, it's true that secular music was also similarly adorned as sacred, but part of it, I think, 
does have to do with the idea that Bach would have had, which is that this music needs to be extravagant in a way, right? It needs to be sophisticated and eloquent for it to properly convey the sacred material that we're going for here. The text is, To God alone on high be the glory. To him alone thanks for his mercy, etc. That kind of stuff, um, you could say it simply or you could say it in a flowery way in the style of the of the day, I think, in order to give that sentiment the gravity that it deserved, you needed to say it in a flowery way. If you just take like one look at Bach's correspondence, his letters that he had with people, whether they were his peers or people who uh, were like electors and governors and stuff where they would have been above him in stature or, or pretty much anybody who was above or peer to him. If you look at the way he wrote letters to those people, you see the flowery language. It's all mm. there. To, it's all there too. It's just how it was in that time period. And this hymn that is being set here to the organ as a chorale prelude is the perfect example, I, th- I would say, because we have the text, all glory be to God on high, who hath our race befriended. And so the glory of God is set with his beautiful ornaments. So it is, it's, it has to be this way. I guess as speaking from, from a musical perspective, how do you do glory in music, I would right. say that you got some options. It could just be really big and loud and triumphant in its bigness. And this is the direction that some Renaissance, late Renaissance composers went in with big double, triple choir and things like that. Or what Bach did here, which is a completely different approach. This is not a particularly loud organ chorale prelude, but the glory of God is represented instead by the exceedingly ornate ornaments that go up and down all the way through right. the keyboard. In the same way that the Baroque architecture of the day was representing the majesty of God with, I mean, just just look at cathedrals, right? I mean, it's, it's obvious. Yeah. And the ending of this German text, at least of the first stanza, which we could use as a guide here to help us understand what Bach was setting, the English translation is not going to do it for us because the lines of the text are kind of moved around to fit rhyming schemes. So in the German, the last line is, all feuds have now ended, or all strifes have now ended. Hmm. That's and that is the last line. And you get, of course, in our striking moment there, you get a final little breath, a sort of like interesting little solo line where the, the rest of it goes away. And then that piece and sort of quiet at the end. Yeah. But I also think, like, as with any any retardando at the end of a, of a, especially of a slow work, but it could be anything, really. It doesn't have to be slow. From this time period, I think that those retardandos are musical metaphors for, like, not wanting the glory of something to end, right? Like, this text might be about ending strife, sure, but we end on a peaceful note. And I think when we stretch out an ending, it's exactly what that's... I mean, the Hallelujah Chorus is, an, is a great example where you... You end on the big word, hallelujah, and the previous words you were just singing was forever and ever, king of kings, lord of lords, and all that. Anytime you're talking about eternity or things like that, stretching out the end of the of the piece and making it last as long as you can is just a metaphor for that. Yeah, but the physical limitations of harmonic progression on our ears is also stretched and tested by these composers. And I think Bach, in this case, is the comparison is that Bach does it smoother than, than Handel. I've always kind of thought that the ending of the Hallelujah Chorus where, I mean, the way that 
Handel prolongs the harmony is just by repeating hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah at the end. Mm -hmm. And the exact number of them almost seems a little arbitrary, but Bach does it instead by stretching out the these weaving melodic lines. It's a, just a, a different approach, a yeah, different approach to prolonging material until the end. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's a good point. And it's amazing that these two composers existed in basically the same time period. The Handel example, besides repeating forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah, which works with the text, of course, but besides that, the most striking thing about the ending of the hallelujah chorus, which is thrilling if you hear it, especially if you hear a really good version of it, is when it cuts and there's a break and there's a silence. And then there's that final glorious hallelujah at the end. That's slow. Mm. Handel did this a lot with his choruses. It would be like he'd barrel to a conclusion. It would cut. There'd be silence for a second. And then there's an adagio last two bars or whatever. You know, like that's how he would do it. And that's you do not see that very often in Bach. But what you do see, like you said, Christian, is a little bit more finesse in the way that Bach constructs the closing section and especially the suspensions, the way he's holding on to the harmonies and not releasing it until the very last minute. This is a great example of that. I mean, he really makes you wait till the end there. And now, here is the ending of the first Allein Gott Chorale Prelude from the 18 Preludes, BWV 662. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the entire organ work or the other two that are complementary with it, please see the link in our show notes. Also, subscribe to us on your podcast player so that you can get our new episodes as they are released. Okay, Christian, what's up for next week on A Moment of Bach? Next week we look at opera, or as close as he got, which is the coffee cantata, we're going to explore that with a guest. Our guest will be Emily Wood, soprano and composer and educator. We're very excited to have Emily on the podcast next week. Yeah. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Mm-hmm.